0: Listeners, and welcome back to This Week in Black History, Society, and Culture, a podcast of the Black and African Diaspora Forum of Monmouth University. I'm Hedy V. Williams, your host. Today on This Week in Black History, Society, and Culture, we have Felicia Simmons, community activist, organizer, and resident of Asbury Park, New Jersey. Welcome to the show, Felicia.
1: Hello, Dr. Hedy. How are you? I'm finding you. I'm pretty great. I'm pretty all right. Well, in fact, Mm -hmm. I I had to stop saying that. I'm okay, and I'm making it through today.
0: That's an excellent uh, way to think about it. So, first, we will discuss Felicia's background and upbringing in Asbury Park, and then we will discuss her personal observations about the impact of COVID nineteen on the African American community in the city. This show is made possible through funding from Monmouth University's Urban Coast Institute, Heidi Lynn Sculthorpe Faculty Enrichment Grant, Justin Sustainable Communities Recovery After COVID 19. So, Felicia, tell us a little bit about where you were born, what year, if you care to share with us. <laughs> well,
1: I was born in Monmouth Medical Center in Long Branch, New Jersey in September of 1979.
0: So you are a local woman and yes, have been in the region for quite some time. What is your connection to Asbury Park? Did your parents live in Asbury Park at the time?
1: Um. Yes. Well, they're from the area. My mom's from um Asbury Park area. She was born in Mama's Medical Center, too. Um. And um, we lived in Long Branch for like two seconds and moved to Asbury and then moved to Neptune. We lived
0: in Monmouth County our whole lives, but pretty much, you know. Asbury Park is where our family lives. So how many years have you been a resident of Asbury Park? Um, I I
1: say my life because I've lived within the same two miles pretty much my entire life, two to three miles. Um, And my family and lived here forever. Asbury Park has always been the hub of our family.
0: When we lived outside Asbury, we lived in Neptune, um, same community. Um, And the rest of our family lived in Asbury Park. So, your parents in your um, family. How many siblings do you have?
1: I come from. Um, well, my dad had ten children, and my mom has four of his ten. So, my um, primary family is um, seven sisters and two brothers. I think that's a oh, nice large
0: have. family. Yeah. So, how many of all of your siblings? How many of them still live in the city? Do does everybody still live in the city? Along um, with out you of my or?
1: prime primary four. Uh, We all still live around. Um, My older brother still lives in Asbury. And my um, other two siblings from my mom live in um, Neptune.
0: And everybody was educated in the public school system of Asbury Park?
1: Yes, we are. Um, I'm a graduate of 1998 of Asbury Park High School. Um, So are my um, younger, well, my sister, older sister. She's um, class of 97. My younger brother is class of two thousand, and my um, from Asbury Park, and my older brother is nineteen ninety four, um, Neptune. You know, he's out like.
0: So, I will get to the question of education in Asbury Park later in our um, discussion, but uh, one thing I, I want to raise is the fact that sometimes people living in Asbury Park will take their their children out of the Asbury Park school system and that's why I was asking you the question was you know everybody in your uh, primary family raised in the school system or or attended the public school system in Asbury Park which obviously is a touchy issue you know past and present
1: yeah you're you're correct cuz my mom um actually um, the reason why we moved out of Asbury and lived in Neptune cuz she wanted us to go to um Neptune schools and we pretty much did and said for because uh, we lived there, and then we moved to Bradley Beach um, my sophomore year in high school. And um, un- knowing to my mother, Bradley Beach is a busing district, and you get bused to Asbury Park High School. So um, wow, that's how that I graduated sense. Asbury Park High School, which I enjoyed. Um, like I said, all my family was in Asbury Park, and um, even though I missed uh, some of my classmates, um, I enjoyed Asbury Park, but I've seen the
0: um, the great disparities um, of the two different school districts. Yeah, you bring up an important issue in uh, the civil rights movement in the nation, the issue of busing and busing children in or out of uh, various communities with the goal of integrating schools and trying to end the uh, segregation. So we when we talk about a little bit more about schools, we could talk about that further in terms of um what actually happens in the school system in Asbury and maybe the adjacent schools because the previous person that I interviewed, Professor Taylor, he grew up in Asbury Park and was talking about um what happens in the school system in terms of separating or sorting kids within the school in Asbury having sort of a long history of, um, you know, figuring out how to separate uh, children within the school. And it does have a history, at least, of segregating students within the uh, within the school, which was a practice that was happening in New Jersey, not just in Asbury Park. Trenton used to separate Black and white students between schools. So we'll get back to that discussion of um, the education system. So most of your family still lives in the region and and in the area uh, and and living in Asbury Park for several years now. Tell us a little bit about your mom's experience during the Asbury Park riots in 1970 and what happened after the riots with uh, White Flight.
1: So um, my mom lived on Lake Avenue at the time and she had to be about 12 to 13 and what she tells me is that she remembers the smoke um, coming down the street. She remember watching it on um, television. And um, we spoke um, earlier when we spoke about, um, did she move? And she stayed. And a lot of um, Black people um, from that time stayed. Some moved, but uh, most stayed. Um, but what happened was white flight and white flight you know, fled the city, um, the, the white family. And what you'll like to hear is that, you know, 1970s, it was hustle and a bustle and it was the heyday of Asbury Park, but that um, is not the truth. Um, what it was was actually on a downward slide. We had malls popping up. We were having a, such a recline in the economy of Asbury Park. And um, the billions of dollars that came in the decades after the uprising, riots, whatever you want to call it, it literally funded um, the developments of the white suburbs that surround um, Asbury Park and in Monmouth County. It injected a lifeline of resources um, 50 years later that are still uh, being tapped in and drained, and who the riots didn't benefit. The riots didn't benefit the minorities that are. Uh, still live in town and have been um, recently pushed out of town at no time at the time of the riots um, what they were talking about was their falling apart um, dwellings where they live which were rat infested and roach infested they were talking about equal wage and having um, uh, being able to live and support their families what they were talking about was police violence and um, over policing what they were talking about, was having citizen review boards so they can take part in the development of their own community. And all those things, uh, 50 years
0: later, um, are still being asked for. Right. I, I remember, I recall, as we were setting the interview up, you had said something in regards to, um, you know, the, the events of 70, just things still not being, you know, left unresolved in the city and as you said, I think pulling the resources from the city and subsequently from the schools, so the school district.
1: Uh, the, resource, the the riots and um, the minorities and the poverty of Asbury Park have been a piggy bank for um, multitudes of people. When and I say that it's a piggy bank, um, it is Asbury Park is the only urban seat in Monmouth County. That means any federal dollar for any um, urban initiative have to come through Asbury Park. Hence, the thousand of nonprofits that exist in Asbury Park, not thousands, but a few hundred um, in Asbury Park and literally every grant being labeled a greater Asbury Park area. Minorities only being 7% of Monmouth County's population and Monmouth County being one of the wealthiest uh, counties in the country, not just in the state, but one of the wealthiest and most expensive counties in the United States. Um, the poverty pimping is what I like to be called is big business here. It's a billion dollar business and the schools being one of those uh, part of that billion dollar business. I'm having, you know, the highest per capita price in the state. Most of it is in grant money. Most of it is in charter schools. Most of it is in over close to 80% of it. 70 and some change goes to administration staff and other things that don't directly benefit the child what literally trickles down to the child's classroom is pennies on the dollar. What we have, we don't have, we still have the same science labs as um, 20 um, some odd years ago when I was in school. We still have some of the same books. There's still a lack of technology in the school that dates back to when I first went to the school in the nineties, we we don't have um, the cultural um, competency um, of the surrounding areas just literally, um, I have a son who is a senior in Asbury Park High School. He is in what they would like to tell as the Dream Academy, which is the dual, enroll, um, dual enrollment um, in Brookdale at the same time. My son is the only um, Black um, child that actually came from the Asbury Park School District that participates in this um, program. Now, there's, other, there's a few other Black children. They didn't come from Asbury Park School District. They weren't taught from kindergarten. They came their high school years to participate in the early college program, but they they didn't go to um, Asbury Park primary schools. They didn't go to the elementary schools. And um, they came from places like Howell, Homedale, private charter schools, Sisters Academies. They came from all over um, to go to this program, which is is great. It has a lot of flaws, but it is a great opportunity. And um, just just a minute, just, we, I can go on for days. So you're going to have to ask me a specific question. I well, no you
0: know, that. now that one question that I didn't ask you actually in the beginning, we can backtrack. It's about, you know, you did talk about your own family and growing up in Asbury Park, siblings and in, in your parents, but your own children and their experience in the Asbury Park school system. And how many children do you have? I have
1: one son. He's 18 years old and he is the love of my life and the biggest pain of my life
0: too. (laughs) It's a fascinating story that you're telling us about the fact that you said he's the only African-American in the enrichment Mm -hmm. uh, college program. That
1: came from the district. Now there's other, there's a few other um, black males. And black females, they didn't come from the school district.
0: They, right. they, they came, came from elsewhere.
1: surrounding areas and came to Asbury to go through
0: this program. And um, So they actually came to en- enroll in the school, Asbury Park School, yes. so that they can be involved in this program? Yes. That's, That's fascinating.
1: Very fascinating. They don't want to speak about it. See, I, I can speak with just, just confidence because not just am I a parent of it. I serve two terms on the Asbury
0: Park Board of Education. That's what I want us to talk some more about. So tell us about that, your role as a community organizer and leader, community leader through the Board of Education.
1: So um, I started out in actually just social justice, being a active parent. Um, I was always an engaged parent. And I remember um, going to the schools and, you know, I was engaged with the teachers. I literally interviewed my son's teacher for second grade. I didn't, um, I didn't feel that his teacher at the time that they gave him was a good fit. So I went around on parent-teacher night and interviewed all the second grade teachers, <laughs> right? To find the proper teach, uh, teacher that I felt was a good fit. And then after parent night, I called the next day and transferred his class. So I was always an engaged um, parent. And one day I went to, um, was a parent-teacher conference and they were telling me the security guard and one of the teachers were telling me how they plan to, you know, shuffle the school and re, you know, you know, take it down and and modify it and do all this realignment. And I was like, why wow, this school works? It had a great principal. Um, it was it was working. And that note, so I he was like, well, come to these board meetings. It's atrocious, right? You wouldn't believe what goes on in these board education meetings. So I, even though at the time I was working two jobs. Um, I was working two jobs and didn't have a lot of time. I decided, you know, I'm going to go because, you know, security guard, a friend of mine, um, invited me. So I went um, after work in between. I didn't have to go to my night job. So I came in after my day job and I sat in this uh, atrocious meeting. I sat and seen a city council that um, literally uh, wasn't paying attention to the people coming up crying one after one. crying at the microphone from teachers saying that you riffed me and the, the process that you used was incorrect. And, you know, I love this district. I worked here my whole life. And then um, I have um, parents coming in saying, you're shutting down my school. My, my child loves my school crying at the microphone. And I'm watching these different uh, officials and, and, and administrators laughing and on the telephone and, and paying attention to everything else but the people in front of them. So, first time ever speaking in public I felt compelled literally compelled to get out of my seat and tell them how rude and disrespectful they were um and how you have a responsibility to respect the people speaking in front of them and um I got up and my voice being loud as I ever spoke in public ever again ever before um and at that time um, they told me they cut my mic off and, and, and told me to leave. Wow. And after on my way out, even though I didn't need a mic, my voice was just as loud. I finished saying what I had to say. Um, someone ran out and caught me in the hallway and said, we need you. So they invited me to a parents group and I, I got involved from there. And a few years after that, when I had more time, because again, I don't do anything unless I have the time to respectfully, you know, Put in. Um, I decided to run for the board of education. I was appointed first, um, and then I I ran and won two terms after that. And even my appointment. What year? 2012, I believe I started. I want to say 2000. Okay, how many years were you on the board? I was on the board uh, five and a half years. Five oh, okay. and a half. Years. And I did a one year. To, after I was appointed, I did a one year term. Because again, I didn't know if I'd like it. I didn't know if it'll fit me. You know, um, sometimes I don't like playing for the rules. So I went for the one year term just in, just so I wouldn't um, have to give up and get off in the midst of a term. I would never do that, right? I would never shuck my responsibility. Um, so I ran Great. for a one year term after that and won. I, they was like, I should have ran for the three. I was the highest vote getter at the time. And um, then after that, I ran for a three-year term after being appointed. I think I served for about a year or so as being appointed on the board, which um, our local guy rest his soul, Joey Raines, um, when I was first appointed, the school board had tons of non-quorums, um, the, the their competing sides and one side Um, would get up and leave every meeting or not show up so they wouldn't have a quorum so the state monitor could take over and make the decisions. And this particular meeting was the last meeting they can appoint because they had um, two people resign from their seats as the board members. And it was the last meeting before it would go to the um, state monitor or county superintendent to appoint people to the board. And it was about to be a no quorum. And um, the president of the board um, who is actually on the board still, she had an emergency and she had to leave. But right at um, the moment when she was about to leave and there was about to be no quorum, Jory Rains, a board member, came right after dialysis and came in and there was a quorum and they were able to do the interviews and they appointed me um, that same night.
0: So you are, are painting a portrait of a of- not only a black woman who's involved in her community, but a mother who cares and does what any other parent would do in a situation where they have their child attending a school. And this was at the time where Esme Park was a state takeover that you served.
1: We still have, um, it's never been a state takeover. It's always been pretty much under a state monitor, and it's still under a state monitor, which and a takeover state monitor is pretty much the same thing. Um, the state monitor has undefined power. Under that undefined power, she has, she came in because of fiscal irresponsibility by the former um, um, business administrator, Corey Lowe, who turned, came back and ran and won as a, um, um, a board member. That's a whole story that's really, like, it's, it blows my mind but um she came in under the um you know accounting issues but then she's been here they've been here ever since because again when we talk about and we're gonna i'm gonna go back to the initial question talking about the piggy bank and um the money um and the school district the state monitor's position is a piggy bank and a way to take care of retired people they receive six hundred dollars a day on top of their already pension because they're retired superintendents right, and county superintendents, so they already receive salaries and pensions of close to $200,000 a year, then get another $600 a day, five days a week, right, you know, 52 weeks a year, right, that's, and wow. it, has, it has no responsibility for the fact that they've been here now a decade, close to a decade, and it's it's worse than when they came in.
0: Do you know if they deliver any sort of progress report? Yes,
1: they have a um, they have a state monitors report that they're supposed to give, and every year is oh the governess but they support the govern the bad governance they support they'll get in with one faction against the other they'll support one faction against the other they'll they'll tote this they'll push that and then again nothing ever happens and there's no accountability because who's crying is the the brown people like me right the black and brown the melanated side and it seems to be you know split down the middle when you argue that look you're not being fiscally responsible. We're paying for tons of stuff that's not needed, right? We, our facilities are terrible, right? If you go back and see every horrible article written about me in the Asbury Park Press, right, come to what, eight, seven, eight years later, all of the same things is what is going on now. When I, I talked about, you know, um, just pushing uh, um, things on the agenda the night that we're supposed to vote on them. Right. When we are hiring people that have no ties to the community and at the top dollar, when we are sitting there and you don't feel that you have to conversate with the community or the board when you make these million dollar decisions that have to do with our children. Right. Again, at that time, I'm the only parent of a child that actually goes to the school district. I was sitting on the board and being one of the only parents. That had a child inside the school district, and wow. just seeing this, the money this goal from when I was on there. We had a surplus of a couple million dollars. We've depleted that. We're in. We're so far in the in the in the woods. It, it is unbelievable to have a budget that is almost a hundred million dollars a year, right? We have a budget that's almost a hundred million dollars a year, and our kids get nothing, right? It is not our the only when you have something that's 20 years old right when your kids are at the bottom of the state for 20 years the only the only constant thing in there is administration and the teachers and everything else those that's the only right thing. what do you it's going a, to it's the same it's a different kid every few years so it can't be the children it can be a system right, right. that is broken
0: right it's it, a it, powerful a powerful statement yeah
1: and, and, you. and these are statements that I, I've made. I've, we found and I said, interviewed and, and spoke to administrators who said, oh, I classified children in kindergarten because their parent got into something. So we put them in a box at kindergarten and they stayed there for their lives.
0: Mm, they get stigmatized exactly. as soon as they walk through the door. It sounds as like. soon as
1: they walk through the door. And then having substandard materials. Right, my son had to take chemistry
0: online.
1: He didn't even have a teacher. He had a. It was like a teacher monitor, a permanent substitute, and an online
0: class. No, actually, you bringing up something I want to ask you about. This ties into the link to COVID because when so many schools uh, went online, my guess is how many how many uh, students in Asbury Park had access to online. Next to none. Materials. Next to none. My son had
1: online because he was in the college program. That's a handful of kids. A handful, right? Less than 20, right? So less than 20 kids had laptops and was used to taking online classes because he had to take some that the school didn't offer and he was already taking college classes. But the rest of the school districts, the elementary schools, everyone else didn't even use computers during their normal day. They had packets, dittos, that they came mm. and they picked up and they dropped off. And hence I say there's people who checked out of school when COVID happened that never checked back in.
0: Right. The disappearance and of... Exactly.
1: There's, there's parents who never picked up packets and never dropped anything off. And again a packet. The big push through COVID when it first happened, instead of getting assessed on the kids and see where everybody was at, was to push a free lunch program, which is meaningful because again, we want to make sure that our kids eat. But again, most of that went to the garbage because again, because they don't have a good line to the community. No one knew to even come to the school to get it, nor would they trust going to the school to get anything. They,
0: we, now that's it, the thing.
1: It is. It's sad. Our kids are going to be so deadly behind. It is. It is de- about teaching a, the parents how to use these. Now they okay. So we're going to go to um 2020, and now mm-hmm. we have to get everybody some kind of component. You get the cheapest piece of technology that's possible: tablet with a. a First, who has the internet accessibility? Yes. See who has the internet mm-hmm. accessibility? No, they didn't see who had the internet accessibility. But so say, okay, we're going to give the kids a hotspot, which has literally enough gigabytes to, to I don't know, brush, watch a movie, one movie that's supposed to last them the semester or the month. Right? So you give them the cheapest mm-hmm. tablet possible. You don't show any infos. You don't show people how to get on to actually use the tablet or to even get to the module, right? You know, other kids get Chromebooks. You get a tablet that no one even knows the brand name. So then you don't teach a parent how to do it. You don't even, sit. who's the counselor that comes around and asks like, okay, we're going to do some in, in, you know, in services for the parents, something for the community groups, right? Me being a grassroots person, it was something that I will volunteer to do. But they purposely didn't go and ask anybody. They didn't want to. They assumed that it it, it was and still is. Having friends who are educators, right, that I love dearly, that work in the school district, that give their best. They didn't give them tools either. And then hearing from um, certain people that um, certain heads of unions was like, well, B, you know, you should feel, you know, OK, because it's not like you got to do the work of like my kids in Ocean, right? My personal children who live in Ocean, their teachers have to do so much. You don't have to do any of
0: that. Yeah, let me let me ask you this question, because I, I, I came across your your um, the poem that you did at uh, TEDx Asbury Park. And in that um video, you express a love for the city of Asbury Park. In that poem, you're talking about uh, the smile of Tilly. And um, the smile of Asbury Park. So here's my thing: given that everything that's going on in the city of Asbury Park, in terms of related to COVID in the school, what makes you love Asbury Park? You could easily get take your children, pack up, move, send your 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 uh, son elsewhere. What what why why do you have such a love for the city of Asbury Park?
1: And you are saying that, and I'm welling up because. I have this deep love for my city. Even all of these these flaws, right? Um, Asbury Park helped me be who I am. It was the first place I can express myself, right? It was a place where I didn't feel like, I told you I lived in Neptune and Bradley Beach. So um, I went to Summerfield School in Neptune. And the only brown kids, most of the brown kids in the school came with me, right, on the same bus that I did. And I lived in Bradley Beach um, on the side where there were no other brown people. So when I came home to Asbury to be around my family, I can be me, right? Um, The culture, the time, that age that in the, um, the 90s and in the 2000s when I came up, when it was me formulating the, my character. That's where I can express myself um, from the the bonfires on the beach to the music, um, multicultural music, right? You, it's a place where you can, everybody was an aspiring poet, writer, artist, right? And then you had the death metal scene because we we're integrated, right? It wasn't like, okay, we kept out any other nationalities. They were black, white, Hispanic. It was all people who didn't necessarily conform to the to the society around them. And at the time when I came up, the black times where no one talks about um Asbury, right? The Deadlands when they called it or Dark City, right? Um No Man's Land, mm-hmm. that was the time when I was able to come up and be completely myself.
0: Okay. So black businesses, we're talking. So tell us more about the Black business at the table. I'm familiar with it. I'm sure many of the listeners are. And you were telling us about the fact that you went with the owner down to the city for some urban uh, redevelopment money.
1: So, and they they told her that those funds have been exhausted. They've been depleted. She was on her last leg. She was, she had heart issues. She had, you know, medical issues. She went through a divorce and, and the whole time she's funding and keeping this restaurant afloat. They wouldn't give her permits so she can have um, outdoor dining like every other um, restaurant in the area. Again, she's being the oldest. She was open for nine, close to 10 years, which was the oldest restaurant in that area. No other restaurant lasted and has lasted as long as um, she did. So she went there. So this is right up to pre-COVID. I mean, literally weeks before COVID, where she had to shut her doors because The city had no help for her. And these dollars were slated literally for her, right? These initiatives were literally slated for her, but she received no benefits where other businesses in the area like Lagusta Lounge and other restaurants literally opened on these um, federal dollars and urban dollars. They had nothing for her. So um, within a month of her closing, um, shortly after that, COVID hit and um our restaurants were devastated. A hundred thousand dollars appeared in the same account out of nowhere. This is pre um this is pre um federal money um allotted to the city. This uh, was always, I guess, in these accounts, this urban development accounts appeared to help out these other um businesses that are now in need of it but there wasn't a single penny available for her not a single penny high rents or rents tripled nothing was available to this this black woman coming together to give a need being the only um not just black restaurant or soul food restaurant in the area but just a hub and a place for all cultures to be able to go um, and and that is the biggest sin. And that was that's how we started. Um, black business started out in COVID, right? That is a, a, a fur, you know, a kick in the in the mouth, kick in the heart. Then to to roll into the fear that we had, um, and just the devastation of people's education and, and food security and and financial security to roll in afterwards uh, the city has still not um has still not addressed um the black need um they do pretty things right our city does these theatrical things that makes it sound good right but in all honesty they haven't done anything to
0: address our need in this city at all so as a grassroots person and organizer Um, What has, for instance, uh, grassroots organizers like yourself and the churches and other community leaders, um, what has been their response to COVID? And uh, it's a shame. I, I know at the table. I used to go there every time I went to Asbury and wanted to find some soul food to eat. I would go to at the table. And I did a couple of months ago. I went and my sister said, I think she's closed. I said, no way. She survived everything. I said, I think she's open. So we called a few times, nobody answered. We went up finally to the door and it was clearly, you know, the restaurant wasn't there anymore. So I'm wondering is, is COVID the last stand for many of these uh, black businesses and community members?
1: Maybe it's our last stand in Asbury park. And, and, and I say that, um, It won't be because, look, I'm a fighter because I love it, right? I love the new, the old. I just want to make sure that some of old stays and and some of this new is a piece cut out for us, right? A piece cut out for me so I can, you know, thrive. I can feel comfortable going out. I can feel comfortable um, anywhere. Well, I feel comfortable everywhere, but I want to bring some of my friends with me. Right. And I don't want to be the oddball out. I don't want the, the waitresses looking at us crazy or being escorted out of um, bonfire because we're a little bit, um, you know, laughing and too, you know, happy on the beach. Right. Those those are things that happens to us. Right. Has happened to me. Right. So so in Asbury, there was a new business that just opened. And this is this is something that I want to point out young black men came and opened up, um, in the bottom of, uh, uh, safe building. Um, I think their name is micro eats, micro bites. Um, and. Oh
0: yeah. I know them. Yeah. I saw them in the mall. Right. I think I
1: saw them in the mall. Yeah. yeah, We're excited for to have them, but nobody knows them. (laughs) This is, this is the hypocrisy, right? Um, I, I, I'm loving the city and I love to have new people in and the city is excited to have them because they're popular and they're not locals hear what I tell you it's not necessarily they're, they're cool to have Melanation in the room as long as they're not locals the ones who burn down their town that's when you get no support right I fight best belief, I'm at every table, not because they invite me to the table. It's because either I'm going to walk in the door anyway, or I'm going to build my own table and make them come to mind. I demand to have a voice in the town in which I live. And just like you said earlier, why do I stay here? I don't know. Maybe it's a little bit of the Asbury craziness that I have. Because, you know, right? Because we're a little different here, right? And And I appreciate our differences, right? I appreciate that. I, I tell people my first babysitters were, um, um, like one of the first, you know, they were married, but they weren't married. An LGBT community, there were pillars of the LGBT community, right at that time. One of my mom's best friends, they lived right in front of us in Second Avenue, right. So that's where he dropped off. They had a phone number that you can write your, you know, um, when you come into town and you're LGBTQ. Right, you come into town, you'll see their number, marking them number on the um, phone booth. They'll come and get you. Right, mm. that's the Asbury I knew. This new, this, this new like divide the that they say is, is never existed in the town I grew up. My best friend has been out his whole life. Right, I don't ever remember him being in a closet, nor having have him have any issues about it. Right, Hispanic. I'm, I feel that I am global because I live in a place where I can have uh, a Haitian grill, right? Um, where, I, you know, the, the fried pork and then Puerto Rican beans and rice and then African, you know, African um, fufu, right? All these different things I know because I grew up from here, right? From Cuban food, right? I, I grew up in this, this melting pot of all different types of people, shapes and colors, and that's that's what I'm I'm trying to hold on to.
0: You present a portrait of Asbury Park that reminds me a lot of Harlem, how all of those cultures come together and um, converge on that one space in the Harlem section of New York. And it's almost as if you present a portrait of uh, of Asbury Park as a kind of Harlem of uh, Monmouth County.
1: It was. And literally, historically, it was right. If every every great figure came through Asbury Park, Mark Black figure, Marcus Garvey, Malcolm X, uh, Martin Luther King, right? They all came through Asbury Park, right? Then you know, um, it was the it was the the it was it was the shore for black folk there was harlem and there was here right madam cj walker's daughter retired right there in long branch so you know she was right here ella fitzgerald count basie right all of them right here they came through this area and it's not just the arts but it was and not just the culture but it was people Mm -hmm. La cuba was one of the restaurants on lake avenue Right, it was it was everywhere before we we're black and white. It, it was just color, right? Color mean everything, right? Right? African American, Indigenous American, the Sandhill Indians, Onnapi Indians, right? All right here, they built Asbury, right? And in Ocean Grove and all these houses, they literally built them. So the the the, the history and the bricks that are laid here are are. You can't, you can't recreate and what's happening now, instead of mixing and merging like they did in the time where I came up right now they're all here, but they're in their little compartments and nobody crosses the street, right? No one knocks on the door. No one knows election time. Someone was telling me one of the persons running, Oh, don't bother with that. You know, he's Arab. He, he can't vote anyway. It was a taxi driver. And I say, what do you mean? We have a huge Pakistani population here in Asbury Park and they're all citizens and they vote. Like how, how you lived here your whole life and you don't know who is here. And, and, and that's why I fight because there's so many people and voices of people that aren't being heard or seen.
0: Right, yeah. So and, tell us some more. Um, uh, you just mentioned this comment that you know, people seem to be sort of divided by geography. If it's a street, you live on this side of the street or this side of the town. And I'm wondering, has COVID made that worse too? I mean, we're all walking around with our masks on, social distancing. I'm wondering if the virus itself is also contributing to that divide between people in the city.
1: It is. And it's It's so dividing... Um. So you have a side of town that I my cousin died, um, not of COVID, but right as COVID happened, so we had to regulate the funeral. And, mm-hmm. you know, previous to that, you know, you know he had died right before and COVID delayed it, so we are in the house. So, so we, we're coming back from his funeral, and we're driving through town, right? We're driving through all the towns. Most of the towns are, like, dead, right? We get into Asbury. One side of the track over by the beachfront, there's people walking their dogs and jogging and, um, you know, completely out like it's a normal sunny day. I'm appalled and no mask. When I say I'm utterly appalled, I'm utterly appalled. And then you get to across the tracks. So I happen to live across the tracks, the west side, the best side um, of town. And everybody is in. Or you see a bunch of kids over at the um, basketball courts, which is scary. Um, you know how they dealt with the kids over at the basketball courts? They locked the courts and they took the hoops down.
0: Oh, to keep them from going to the courts without the masks.
1: Exactly. But did they? they never gave out a mask. Even when the city started finally giving out masks, even though we kept begging them, the former mayor, Myra Campbell, um, literally, who has an initiative right now trying to help, continue to help out with COVID? Um, she wrote a letter to Vin Gopal. Instead of giving out masks, which on the other side, when they did, they started passing them out at the train station for the people going down to Cookman. They never walked on the west side to pass out a mask. I did a, a meal giveaway um, and I had to get my resources from uh, my National Action Network. on the president of Monmouth Ocean County. But I had to tap into my brothers and sisters up in North Jersey and Newark to help get some food down here. And I tapped into them to give me some masks and and some hand sanitizer to give out, right, on my side Mm -hmm. of town, right? I did it at Pastor Taluska's church um, on the corner of Washington Avenue. We were giving out food. I was giving out gloves and hand sanitizers and masks um, because there was no one else doing it. And um, we couldn't find, it was hard to find masks. Like I said, I had to ask my friends up north. And it turns out that the city council had thousands of masks um, that they wind up eventually giving out months in. But, you know, there were deaths and friends were dying. And it was was a, we were scared because all we heard that we were dying at a quicker rate, a much faster rate. And no one can tell you what it was. And the kids didn't want to believe it was anything more than a flu. So it was a such a stressful time. And it's still a stressful time. I had to have a conversation with my um, sister-in-law last night uh, talking about mental health with young kids. Because where do they go now? If we want to talk about a program that is needed, we need some mental health uh, professionals dealing with the adults, but also dealing with these children because it hasn't been addressed. You can say it to this blue in the face, but when it comes when it comes from people like me, right? right. I'm just that, you know, I hear, oh, you're so well-spoken. Where are you from? Oh, I live in Asbury Park. Oh, that's great. It's coming back, isn't it? Where are you from originally? I'm from Asbury Park. Oh, right? You hear that? Oh, mm-hmm. right. For and- sure and And then we but look, you can't have a cure if you don't if you don't have and invite in the people affected by the disease you you can't and and my generation i I think we are we are the cure, and, I, and me and my friends, we laugh at it i say we're we're old enough to remember the promises of the old, and we're young enough to see the the hopelessness of the future, right. And, and where the kids just see the hope, the young, young kids just see hopelessness, especially with the new COVID, right? Um, with COVID, just, they have no idea and we have no advice to give them, right? But because we're a little, my generation, we're a little bit of old and new, right? I think we, we have to be part of the solution. And still to this day, they try to cut us out of those decisions. It's either we talk to the ones, the 21 year olds, or you talk to, you know, the 65 and 75-year-olds. But the ones in between there, right, where's the voice of them? Where, where are our voices? We don't count.
0: We're old, yeah. we're too young. Generation X, yeah. Yeah, Generation right.
1: X. We're, we're Generation X, but we're not even, my generation is right on the cusp under that.
0: Yeah, Millennials.
1: Yeah, we're, <laughs> we're, we're the first, very beginning of Millennials. Right, that very, it, they're called Zennials. Zen, we're right in we're right in the middle of that, right like we have a foot on a millennial and we have a foot on the X that's, that's a really odd few years right there that's that 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 38 to 44 that age group right there we we, we, we we told a line we're a little old and we're a little
0: new so um tell us a little bit more if you feel uh, like sharing how if anyone in your 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 uh, friend group or family, has been directly impacted by the coronavirus?
1: It was, um, what hit me, all of it hit me hard, but what hit me the hardest was a young guy, I know, um, new, right? His name was Chumsey. He was in his mid-20s, mid to late 20s. Um, security guard at the high school and football coach for the young kids, right? Cool, just altogether a good guy he got in trouble when he was younger, but you know, he was, he was a grown man now, um, a real example. Well, he died, um, of COVID and, um, no one expected it. He was fine. And in two weeks later, he wasn't. And, um, it hit me, it hit everybody so hard. It hit us hard because it hit home and young and lively and healthy. And um, this one experience that it just, at the breaking point. So I was just watching, um, a friend did a very beautiful memorial to him. um, That was on YouTube. It was um, beautiful, right? Um, Touching. um, It had how, you know, how we can memorialize. We went to the courts and we let off balloons, social distancing, and our mask and everything else. But the hypocrisy of that weekend was it was, there were so many people down on the beach. It was crowded and ridiculously crowded. And um, so I'm watching this memorial online and I get this email. I read this email chain from Senator Vingel Powell talking about the business committee and we have to get the business committee together because, um, you know, we got to reopen the beachfront or something in that manner. I completely. Lose it. I send him an email saying, Where is the committee about black and brown issues? We are dying here. If you act like any different and you act like you pay no mind to us, that means you have no compassion for us because we are literally dying. While you're worried about opening the beach and having record numbers, beaches where the governor has to literally tell people to go home. What we're doing across the tracks is going to a memorial of a fallen friend. I can't and I will not support any initiative that doesn't have a cutout black agenda in it. We can no longer sit back and act like we are not affected or we we have to wait or wait our turn or take our time. Right. Because it's an emergency. And I got back a letter of all kinds of excuses and blaming Trump and everybody else. And that black committee never formalized, never came to existence. There's never, there still has not been any agenda for us written by us with us in mind. We're still fighting for the same things 50 years ago. They were fighting for our citizen review board. We have an ordinance now that takes it out to vote where we get to go out and vote on if we if we have rent control since covid they have there's people who had their rents raised two times right since covid started we're we're about after covid we're about to come into a a a record number of homelessness because you know people are so far behind there'll be no way they can catch up with their landlords and right. the in the state government has not enacted any bill that could save us or help us like the people's bill under Timberlake that can help, at least in all that does is set up a payment arrangement with the landlord and the tenant. We have none of those things. And have we been addressed in this city? It has not been addressed in the city. The homelessness back rent, our, our, our city council is still sitting on $150,000 worth of COVID money that could be given out to help support some people in the city. And it has not. Right. I I hear all the time. We we care about the businesses. Yeah. I care about the businesses. Right. But I care about the people in it. I care. I care about the people who go to the stores. I care about if they have a home and they have food instead of, you know, being able to go to the restaurants and buy food. Right. We can't, we won't fight for, you know, tenors rights, but we'll fight the governor for um, ability to go inside and eat in the dining room, right? We'll go up against We're, the government, yeah. but we won't fight for, the, we'll fight to open those restaurants and send the workers back making $3.50 an hour and, and exposing them to disease, right? When, when are we going to fight for people there's this talk of there's, there's policies that we are not implementing. We do good shows where people show up at the V&A, but yet you don't talk to the people on the other side and say, are they even going to go? Because they're scared and they know nothing about the vaccine. And they don't trust you enough to say, I'm going to go and do it.
0: Yeah, that's the big uh, question now. Um, the African-American community and convincing uh, members of the African-American community to actually take the vaccine is the next hurdle besides what the virus itself has wrought. Well Felicia, I have taken up a lot of your time today. <laughs> we can probably both both agree. <laughs> but we got it done. We got a good
1: um you got me crying. Conversation. My whole here. Mascara up in here. I'm glad we ain't on tape.
0: I'm so glad that um, you are emotional about the city that you love. And um, I think that your emotion will resonate uh, with the people that listen to this show and hopefully they will come down and visit Asbury Park and see many of the sites that you discussed in uh, in the show today. But I want to thank you so much for doing this interview with me and your patience and uh, taking out this time in your day as an important leader in Asbury Park community organizer grassroots organizer. Thank you so much.
1: No problem. Um I love it. I love it and I love when people come. My rally had 10,000 people there. So, and wow. all people and it was a beautiful, loving, energized day and cuz that's what asbury and that's what love is. And that's 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 what I can say I get from here.